0: Well, hello, everybody. It looks like we are live, so we're going to jump right in. And again, as always, I try to bring fun, entertaining, engaging conversations to you to help you think deeper about the Christian worldview, deeper about life, and deeper about how we can go out and present good reasons to the culture around us, to our friends, family, might be skeptical and be ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And that is the goal. And joining me is distinguished professor of philosophy at Talbot School of Theology, Dr. J.P. Moreland. J.P. Moreland, thank you so much for joining the show. It's always good to be with you, Ryan, and I'm looking forward to this. Absolutely. I'm looking for a fun conversation. I know it will be, and it looks like people are already sending in questions, so I'm excited about those. We're going to get to those. But for those who don't know J.P. Moreland, uh, he is the Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University, where I went. He has four earned degrees, uh, a bachelor's in chemistry, a THM in theology from Dallas Theological Seminary, a master's in philosophy, and a Ph.D. in philosophy from the University of Southern California, USC. Co-authored author, 30 books, written 70 journal articles, just done incredible work in the mind, metaphysics, epistemology, and philosophy. So I'm excited for this conversation. And today we're going to be discussing his new book, not new book, I'm sorry. I bought this a while ago, but it's a great book, The Soul, um, how we know it's real and why it matters. And so that's going to be the topic of the conversation. So let's start out, Dr. Moreland, what is the soul? Why does it matter? Why should people
1: watch this conversation? Well, let me start with why it matters first. Uh, There there are uh, three reasons that it it matters, that we have souls and that consciousness isn't physical. And the first one is, uh, whether you like it or not, the Bible teaches that. Uh, There have been uh, Christian physicalists that have arisen in the last three, four decades who've tried to reinterpret the scriptures to say that we're just material beings. Uh, But... It, that's a hard sell. I debated a New Testament professor, Richard Middleton, on this up at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago. And quite frankly, he didn't have a whole lot of very strong arguments. And he hadn't thought through some of the really bad implications of his physicalism. So that's one. Two, um, uh, if if there is a, a soul, uh, then... Um, Atheism and and materialism are false, because uh, the reason atheism is false is there is no explanation for the origin of uh, something immaterial from matter. And so if you start with in the beginning where the particles and the history of the universe is just a history of rearranging those particles or waves or strings, whatever you want to call them, according to the laws of chemistry and physics, then you're going to end up with nothing but complicated arrangements of particles. You're not going to get mind squirting into existence. And so that will mean that there are only two really decent solutions to the origin of consciousness. One is going to be panpsychism, which will be the view basically that every material object has its own form of consciousness, so an electron is conscious and, and that sort of thing. And uh, the other is theism, because if you start in the beginning with a particle, uh, was the logos, then it doesn't. it's not hard to think that other lo- logoi could come into being because your fundamental entity is mind. And then I think third and finally, it is far easier to make sense out of life after death uh, if we are not our bodies uh, than, it, than it is to try to figure out how we could survive death uh, uh, if we're just physical objects. So that's why it
0: matters.
1: Now, um, um, just I'll make this quick, but what is consciousness? Uh, Consciousness is basically uh, what you're aware of when you introspect. Uh, And so your conscious life is filled with sensations and desires, uh, thoughts, beliefs, acts of free will. These are all states of consciousness, and uh, I claim that they are one and all uh, spiritual entities. They're not in any sense of the word at all physical. I'm not arguing for that right now. I'm just stating my view. And then what is the soul? Well, throughout the history of biblical, uh, the Jewish people, the Christian church and Plato and uh, the Western thought, The soul has basically been defined as uh, an immaterial or spiritual substance or or thing that contains consciousness and animates the body. So a soul is uh, an immaterial uh, thing, a substance is what philosophers call it, that contains consciousness and animates the body. It follows that animals have souls, uh, and this has always been the teaching of the church, and it's just common sense. Yeah. Uh, dogs feel pain and so on, but they're not There they're a difference between diff- various animal souls and the human soul. So that's, that's a brief overview yeah. of some of the –
0: That's good. And now you also mentioned in your book on the soul that uh, an understanding of the soul helps us in dealing with ethical issues like abortion, euthanasia, and human rights. Like all of this is tied to a deeper understanding of the soul, which I think are things that Christians want to stand up for and want to have opinions and beliefs on. So how is it that a deeper understanding of the soul actually is tied to these ethical issues that we face in our culture?
1: Well, um, Suppose that I'm a chunk of matter, and uh, it's arranged in a certain way uh, to form a biological species uh, known as Homo sapiens. I, it's hard to see how I'm worth very much, because if you take the chemicals that make me up, they don't, they don't matter a whole lot, and uh, you might say, well, um, your character And your actions still matter. But if I'm just a material object, I don't actually perform any actions. As Wittgenstein said a long time ago, there has to be a difference between my hand going up and me raising my hand. The former, my hand going up, could be a a, a passive response to some kind of nervous twitch. Or perhaps somebody else raised my hand for me. I raising my hand is an intentional exercise of of freedom, uh, of active power, and that is an intentional action. So that if I'm a material object, uh, I'm not capable of performing intentional actions any more than a, a robot can perform intentional actions or a computer or a rock or anything. Uh, and so uh, it makes a great deal of difference to why I have intrinsic values. Now, this is not to say that the body doesn't have value, but the body doesn't have value because it's made up of chemicals. I think the body has value because it's the th- it is the thing that I inhabit and dwell in. I, I manifest myself through it and in it. And uh, I have a certain definition of the body that we won't go into now, but it mean it implies that there, the body is not merely physical; it is an ensouled physical thing, and so that's partly why uh, it matters that there's more to us than than just being physical, complicated physical objects.
0: Yeah, that's good. Now, when you kind of as you travel, you've spoken at a lot of churches, a lot of campuses. How would you say is kind of the basic Christian understanding? How well do Christians who believe that we do have souls, that we're created in the image of God, uh, and we're you know spirit and soul and that kind of thing, as we'll get into, uh, would you say that Christians have a good understanding of the soul, why it matters, why it's important, and why we actually know it exists, or is this something that we can grow in?
1: Um, last year I was in a spiritual formation class at my church and um, someone raised their hand, and, and and I wasn't teaching, I was just a member and said, you know, I don't know how the soul relates to the self, and uh, this is just a confusion to me. And at that moment, a 70-something-year-old gentleman who was a bit flustered raised his hand and said, I've been a Christian for 35 years. And I have never once heard a teaching on what the soul is. And I don't have any idea what one is. Hmm. Uh, and so um, I, I have found that that's a standard. And here, here's a test. The reason that I think people don't know anything about the soul is because when you tell them animals have souls, their first question is, well, are you saying they go to heaven when they don't? Hey, you just took one of my questions. <laughs> yeah, well, that's not an unimportant question. Yeah. What that tells me is that the only thing that they think the soul does is go to heaven when mm. you die. And uh, th- th- that is not why we should believe that there is a soul, and people would not have that be the lead question if they knew what souls did. Mm. And so uh, they they have not been taught on why we should believe that there is such a thing and um, why we should, uh, how we can understand the way it functions. Yeah. Am I not getting- Yeah, you're good.
0: Okay. Yeah, we're good. So then what would you say, what is the main function of the soul then if it's not uh, to send a person to heaven?
1: Well, okay, number one, uh, I am my soul. And so uh, the soul is the I or the self and uh, the first thing it does is it is able to ground my uh, personal identity or my being literally the same thing from one moment to the next even if I gain and lose body parts if I have my arms cut off I'm still 100% of a person so I'm still me uh, and if I lose my my if I get amnesia lose my memories my soul is what grounds me Uh, that I'm still I, even if I have lost my memory, and it can also ground uh, my continued existence if I die, and don't have any body whatsoever. That's the one thing the soul does. Another thing that it does is it contains what are called faculties. Now, um, to understand this, uh, Ryan, uh, recognize that uh, at any given moment in our lives, we have uh, far more potentialities that we're not utilizing than ones we are utilizing. Like right now, I'm utilizing my uh, ability or my potentials to sp- to speak English. Mm-hmm. But most of the time, if I'm watching television, I have that power, but I'm not using it. And so, uh, right now, I could I could think about. Uh, mathematics, or I could, you know, think about American history, or, or, or I could do a lot of things I'm not currently doing. And so uh, the soul is made up of far more potentialities than are currently at any time being actual actualities or being used. Uh, now, um, each of the faculties of the soul contains a grouping of natural capacities or abilities and and that's why the university called the different departments faculties they had different functions as a faculty of the chemistry department than the english department did so my mind uh, contain is what contains my thoughts my beliefs and my powers of of seeing Uh, rational connections, uh, uh, my powers of thinking, Um, my uh, emotions, uh, faculty of emotion contains my anger and my feelings of love and joy, my faculty of, I have five uh, sensory faculties, sight, sound, and, and so on. I have a faculty of will, which are all the powers I have to exercise free choice. Now, my, my will isn't the same thing as my mind. They're different, <laughs> mm. uh, and they're not the same thing as my spirit, which I take to be. The powers I have to be aware of the unseen world, God and demons and angels, and to discern God's voice, um, I, uh, which also uses the mind. They can Different faculties can work together but so uh, my brain and body are not capable of having consciousness and so my soul is the thing that is is adequate to have a conscious life and it contains my thoughts and feelings and beliefs and all that the different faculties do yeah so you made a comment
0: at the very beginning and I, and I had this in my notes to talk to you about, uh, some people, you know, say like, I am my body. Other people say I am a soul. Other people say, no, I am the union of body and soul. Uh, you said, I am a soul. So would that be the more proper way in your opinion of putting that?
1: Yeah, I don't think you can be a body, uh, uh, because if you were just a body, you wouldn't be able to have consciousness. Yeah. Uh, you'd be a zombie, uh, quite literally. Or a a very complicated robot Um, I think that uh, if I cannot be a union of body and soul in my view because uh, if I am uh, identical to A and B so I am the same thing as A and B if I lose B it's no longer I I, I'm not I didn't mean the letter I. Yeah. it's no longer It's not me anymore. Yeah, uh, because I'm A and B, and so since I believe that it's possible, indeed, I believe beyond any reasonable doubt that it actually is true that we die, our bodies, uh, leave, our souls leave our bodies, and eventually, uh, in the resurrection, they will they will be reunited with a new resurrected body. Yeah. Well, it's it's me, uh, Ryan, that dies. I, I am the one who goes in the intermediate state and in the presence of the Lord to be absent from the bodies, to be present from, with the Lord. And um, that couldn't be if I were a body-soul unity, hmm. because I would be losing one of the things that makes me me. Yeah. And so I uh, happen to think that I'm a soul and I have a body.
0: So what if someone says, well, that's why Paul stresses the importance of a physical resurrected body, because there is something special and unique about the physical body that you're not just a soul.
1: Just because something is necessary for full human flourishing, it doesn't follow that it's necessary for me to exist. Mm. So... um you take my hand my right arm, for example? I, I mean that right arm's presence has helped me flourish in a way that would be hard for me to do without it. Yeah. but it's necessary for my existence. Uh, we, our souls were made to, to function best through a body. Um, it is possible to function without one. Uh, as we have learned in near-death experience stories. But um, that's not natural. It is a temporary state. Paul says in in 2 Corinthians that he would rather not be found naked when Christ comes back, meaning that he would rather not be disembodied. Uh, So he would rather be around at the second coming so that his new resurrected body could be placed on him immediately in in replace of his earthly body so we wouldn't have to go through a time of disembodiment but then he ends up saying but at least it's better to be to to be absent from the body is to be home with the lord and that's better than what we got right now yeah so the best situation would be to get your new body instantaneously the next best is to be disembodied and the worst is having to be stuck in this world it's Pretty
0: messed up <laughs> yeah awesome well that's good that really helps kind of clarify those uh now a few questions did come in uh that address on some of the things that you mentioned and so i want to bring that up this one is uh different now i haven't heard of this hopefully you have uh but here johnny wrote in and said um he's in the medical field and he's curious if there's any merit to the idea that the soul has weight as duncan McDow- McDougall pointed out in his 1907 study 21 grams uh do you have any knowledge of this study or this idea of the soul having weight what?
1: Yeah, there's it. It is there's it. It's unintelligible uh, for the soul to have weight. In other words, it's like a square circle.
0: So, so, um, so what and, exactly? Uh, so like, is it is it in this study? Because I'm not aware of it. Is this actually talking about a physical actual weight to the soul?
1: I don't know, do you know of any other kind of weight? I, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's
0: a weight of importance or something of that sort.
1: <laughs> oh, well, I mean, if it means important. no, I think he's talking about physical weight. Okay. And um, does God have have weight? No, no. He's why not? Because he's a spirit. He's not made out of matter. And souls or spirits do not have weight. Uh, It it, say that we do is to confuse what sort of a thing a soul is with what sort of a thing a material object is. For example, souls are not spatially extended. They don't have size or width or shape. Uh, they they are in the body, but um, they are in the body as God is in space. Namely, they are fully present at each point of my body, like, uh, like being uh, mathematical points that are at each point of my body. So that's why if I lose my arm, I'm not 90% of a person. Yeah because my soul is fully present everywhere. So while I do believe that the soul is in space, uh, namely it's it's at each location fully where my body is, just like God's omnis- omnipresence means that he, in my opinion, is, is fully present everywhere. I mean, if, if space shrunk uh, and, and the universe became half its size, God wouldn't... Sh- god's omnipresence wouldn't shrink uh we wouldn't end up with 80 percent of god you you know (laughs) because he's not like a physical object partly here partly there like a table uh where a table is extended in space by having parts and different locations and uh but a spirit isn't like that spirits are fully present Throughout the region they occupy, and they're not spatially extended entities. And I think a necessary condition for having mass or weight, for having weight, is A, having mass, uh, and B, being extended. And I think souls have neither mass nor extension, so they can't be uh have weight okay good
0: now johnny did kind of uh, expand on this and he i guess the study points out that many pastors have even commented on this idea that once the death of human body occurs there is a weight loss that occurs the body weighs 21 grams less at the point of death than before death therefore your soul left your body soul weighs 21 grams
1: well i don't believe that i think the pastors who comment on this just quite frankly don't know what they're talking about okay um, I mean, pastors can't know everything. God bless. Them. <laughs> they've got a tough enough job as it is, but um, they don't. They've never studied this issue. They don't know. Literally, they know nothing about it, and that's why they don't teach it in the church because they don't know anything about it. Okay. Um, I, and if I, 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 just, I doubt that those studies are real. But if they are, I would find some other explanation, okay. some theological explanation, because souls just don't have mass. That's good. Or,
0: Good. Now, at the beginning of the show, you talked about how the importance of the soul and in just the mind and consciousness is that it proves an atheistic materialism is false. Uh, Roger commented in and said he's curious on what you think, if this also relates to or refutes pantheism and panentheism.
1: Well, Roger, that's a good question. Um, I think uh, pantheism is is basically the idea that everything... Uh, is, is is divine. Uh, they're different usages. Uh, panentheism is the idea that God is sort of the soul of the universe. like the soul my soul's in my body, God's spirit or soul is uh, diffused somehow uh, throughout the universe. Now, um, I think uh, if there is a, a soul like I'm arguing, uh, then we get an idea of the kind of thing it is and we realize that it is an independent substance that is my i is not a part of anything else it is a fu- it, it 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 is what is called uh mentally fundamental and something is fundamental if it is not grounded in something more fundamental so what 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 i'm saying is then that the mental self and uh, consciousness, uh, consciousness is grounded in the self, but the self is not grounded in the brain or anything else. It is ontologically independent. Now, that doesn't mean that there can't be causal relationships between the brain and the and mental states. so that if you do something to the brain, you'll lose your ability to have certain memories or what have you. But um, given that we have a good idea of what a soul is, namely, it's a fundamental—it's it's mentally ontologically fundamental. It doesn't depend on something else for its identity and existence, uh, only contingently. Uh, then, then when we go, go to think about God, if we think about God as a spirit, then God would be mentally fundamental. Uh, God would be something that does not depend on something more fundamental uh, for his existence, because he would be ultimate, or a mentally fundamental substance. Now, of course, we're finite souls, so we do depend upon God, but God is not a finite soul, so he is metaphysically necessary. He doesn't it could not not exist. Now let me say one more thing about this, Ryan. I hope I'm not just talking too long no, here. Good. But um, uh, I think what this means is then that pantheism um, is just, is, is false because um, uh, God being a, a, an independent fundamental substance, spiritual substance, uh, cannot be uh, the universe or cannot be uh, identical to the one. I mean, you know, the the one. It's it, it's a little bit hard to understand in some Eastern religions. But the one is either the universe, which is kind of illusory, or it's the all. It's it's everything. God is not everything. God is a fundamental spirit that could exist without anything, without the universe or anything like that. Panentheism gets it wrong. Because I believe most panentheists, I could be wrong, but the the ones I've read, hold that God is an emergent thing, Hmm. that when, when the universe reaches a certain level, then God emerges, and he continues to emerge. But if God is mentally and ontologically fundamental, he doesn't emerge in dependence on something that's more fundamental. It's rather the universe somehow depends on him, not the other way around.
0: Okay, that's good. Thank you so much for that clarification. Now, um, another question that is kind of related again to what you said, um, first of all, is you, you're talking about this idea of um, soul and spirit seemingly being different things. Would you say that the human is kind of three-part? There's body, soul, and spirit, or is somehow, are those connected? Uh, how would you describe the difference between soul and spirit and how those work out?
1: I really like the question, Ryan. Um, Think of a chest of drawers and um, in in a chest of drawers, um, you have a a sock drawer where everything in that drawer kind of resembles each other. They they may be different colors, but we all know that they're socks. Mm -hmm. Next drawer would contain nothing but t-shirts. The next door underwear, the next door perhaps sweaters. Um, And so each drawer, It contains uh, things in it that are unique to that drawer. They belong in that drawer. Now, by the same token, um, if we take the soul to be the chest of drawers and each drawer to be a faculty, then the faculty of mind would contain... uh, Socks and um, certain kind of athletic wear, because it would contain you know mind, uh, the mind contains thoughts and beliefs. So there would be different things in the mind drawer. The next drawer, the emotions would contain would be like the t shirt The will would be the all of the powers to choose, and so those might be underwear. I don't know, <laughs> but you get the point. Yeah. <laughs> And the older you get, the more I lose my control. So, <laughs> 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 so that goes with the territory. But um, I think what I would say then is that the spirit would be another chest of drawers that would contain things that belong in it. And so uh, I'll tell you what those are in a second. But if I'm right about this, then the, the soul is to the spirit, like a whole chest of drawers, is to the um, sweater drawer.
0: Okay. The,
1: the, the spirit is a an inseparable part, or a mode, or a faculty of the soul, so there's a part-whole relationship there, although the soul isn't made of parts like uh, a, a, a table is, where you can just take them off and They'll they'll be the same. All the faculties of the soul depend on the soul existing before they exist. So in the spirit, I think there are powers of uh, receiving distinctively spiritual life and exercising um, powers of intimacy uh, and communion with God. I think it's the powers we have of being directly aware of his presence and discerning him, discerning his voice, and, and being able to be aware of demonic and angelic presences, which happens all throughout the third world and is happening more and more here. So I see, that's it. I, I, the body is something that the chest of drawers, uh, you might say, rests on, and uh, it helps the chest of drawers to to get
0: around. That's good. Now, I, I love the, the helpful illustration of kind of seeing the connection and how they fit together, but are unique. Now, you also mentioned kind of in that first part, uh, the idea of to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, this belief that the soul leaves the body and, and, and goes and is with the presence of the Lord at the point of death. And a few questions actually came in about this, uh, one from Instagram from Jimmy. Uh, but, you know, uh, I know you've done some research on near death, uh, sorry, not near death, um, yeah, near death experiences. Um, I had um, and I'm just completely blanked on my mind, my favorite mind. I had Gary Habermas talking about near death experiences a few weeks ago. Uh, but this idea that, uh, it seems to suggest that the soul kind of sticks around as believers. If we believe that we immediately go to Christ upon death, how do you reconcile this with the soul kind of seeming to stick around for these experiences? And so, uh, even on YouTube, the question came in, what happens to the soul at death? Is it judged? Does it go to an intermediate state? Does it stick around on earth until the final judgment? How do we understand that?
1: Okay, uh, go, two two questions, and the first one is um, the mere possibility of disembodied existence is enough to prove that I'm a soul. It just just if it's possible, doesn't have to. Be, none of it has to be real. It just has to be logically possible, and here's why. Um, if, if there's anything true of me that is not true of my brain and body, then I can't be my brain and body uh, because we have things that are different about us. Does that make sense? Yeah. If I were just my body anything, or brain, anything true of it would be true of me and vice versa. Now, that includes things that are possibly true. So let's suppose that we have Jim and Fred here, and they both are the same height and have the same weight and the same skin color and all the rest of it. Uh, and we don't know if, if these two guys are two different people or if they're one, one person, uh, because they're exactly alike in all their properties and attributes. But suppose we learned... Uh, what was it Jim and Fred that I used? let's just uh, I suppose we learned that Jim Even though he's five seven could be He could have been five ten But there is something about Fred that is such that he's five seven and he could not have been five ten for various physiological reasons even though neither one of them is five ten both of them are seven the mere fact that one of them could have been 510, while the other could not have been, tells me without any question that there are two different embodied people here instead of one, because there's something true of one, not true of the other. And that's enough to show they're not the same thing. Now, uh, if I am possibly disembodied, if I could, it's at least possible that I could exist. Uh, in a disembodied state, I can't be a physical object because no physical object is possibly such that it could exist disembodied. Um, My brain could not exist disembodied, neither could my body exist disembodied. And so even if there's no life after death, uh, I cannot the possibility of my disembodiment tells me I'm not a material object of any kind. Yeah. Now you see what what what's going to have to happen here is I'm assuming uh, that a that a physical object is essentially physical. In other words, if a brain is a material object, then that's essential to its. Uh, I, you, there are no such things as brains that aren't physical. And I, I that I do hold that I don't know what it would mean to say. There's a body or a brain, and it's not a physical object of any kind. So I think that that's one thing. Now, now if you've ever listened to any of the stories, I, I debated Michael Shermer and Victor Stenger um, on this question of life after death. And um, oddly, both of them, and boy, this was a big mistake. They both were willing to grant that they wanted to let the evidence settle the issue about about the all of this stuff. Okay. And I said, dude. I said, uh, dudes. I said, um, if somebody said that there was going to be a TV show on NBC uh, where they were going to trace the steps of some people that discovered square circles in a field in Montana, you wouldn't. You wouldn't even turn the station on because that's not even coherent. It's not possible. Yeah. So you don't let evidence decide things that are impossible. Now, by virtue of the fact that you're willing to let evidence decide whether near-death experiences are real, what you're saying is that it's possible they are, and therefore you're going to let the evidence be the deciding factor. But now, what you've admitted is that we're souls, because, and uh, you know, because if it's possible for me to be disembodied, I can't be a body or a brain. And I'd, say, I'd sure like to know where you, where souls came from. And I think uh, there's a huge argument about there has to be a God to create the immaterial, because it can't come from matter. Yeah. Oh, now let's let's talk about what happens to us. Uh, the Bible is sketchy. Uh, on this, and the best thing you have to do is read a good book on NDEs because they give us more detail. Uh, now, my view is this that when we go to extra biblical sources, uh, um, if the evidence is good, we are perfectly within our rights to accept what is being taught in these extra biblical sources as long as it doesn't contradict the Bible. So we have biblical teaching, we have teaching contrary to the Bible, and then we have just extra-biblical teaching. We're free to accept extra-biblical teaching, but not contrary to the Bible teaching. And that's why I recommend John Burke's book, Imagine Heaven, as the best book I've read where he tackles... Uh, the problems that many Christians have with near-death experiences. And he shows that all these problems are are not problems for the biblical text. So set that aside. When we die, we, we go to, we, we are alive, our souls leave our bodies, um, uh, we might not know we're dead for a while, uh, because uh, uh, when you die and your body is outside your soul, you, you, you feel no pain, you're in peace, uh, there, there's, no, there's nothing going on that's uh, anxiety producing or what have you. And you may just feel so calm that you don't know you're outside your body. And uh, there have been many times when people have had to discover that five or ten minutes later. When they finally looked down from the ceiling and saw good grief that's my body down there i thought that was some other patient Hmm. and uh you know they didn't know they were dead because it was so wonderful well then then um you are either taken uh to heaven or to to the heaven or hell let's just stick with heaven for a minute um you get there by way of an escort and by way of crossing a barrier Now this barrier is often some kind of tunnel that you go through and there's a white light at the end and that's God. Um, Other times people have to cross a specific barrier of some kind and get across it. And once they cross that they can't come back. What what I want to insist though is that heaven is a spatial location that is in a parallel space. It is not in our space. It is in a parallel space. And that means that getting there is like going through the wardrobe in C.S. Lewis. That tunnel doesn't take you, you know, let's say two billion miles up in the sky and you bump into heaven. No, the tunnel as you go through it by, with an angel or a loved one that died and went to heaven escort you or Jesus himself, you don't know it, but you are, eventually, you pass through into another spatial dimension without knowing it happened. And there, you will see, oh gosh, uh, if this was, i got to tell you, Ryan, if, if what are seeing were more evident to us, uh, you know, why doesn't God make heaven more evident? I'll tell you why. People would be committing suicide right and left because nobody would want to stay down here. Hmm. Uh, everybody who goes it, it suffers depression. Uh, sometimes they get divorced because they cannot handle life back here compared to what they experienced. Um, and the love of Jesus and the, the beauty of the scenery. Now, people who go to hell experience a completely different situation. And when they've come back, they've said it was horrible, but they were given an opportunity by Jesus Christ himself to take note of what has happened and to reassess what they're doing with their lives. Now, this isn't a second chance after death. Even though these people are dead, I don't think this is is what I would call final death. Yeah. And so, anyway, that's the gist of what happens to people. Okay. Intermediate states.
0: Wonderful. Now, you mentioned debating Michael Sherman there and talking about the evidence for the soul. Uh, How could you summarize uh, shortly what is some of the best evidence for dualism and the fact that humans uh, are souls?
1: Okay, well, there are five or six pieces of evidence. I won't go over all of them, but here's number one. Persons are all-or-nothing kind of things. You either have a person present or not. There's no person present. And persons can't exist as percentages of themselves. It doesn't make any sense to say, here's an 80% person. Persons are, are therefore, indivisible in their being. They can be divided in their functioning. If you split a person's brain, they can engage in split-brain activity where they're not correlated, but that's because their brain is in a situation that isn't working the way it's supposed to work. But that doesn't mean they are themselves not still a simple, partless soul. And so the body and brain can be divided. I mean, I can have half a brain. There are people with Andy Walker syndrome have 10% of a brain. And if you take a, an X-ray of their skulls, there's a empty, there's a sack of fluid inside their head, and there's a 10 percent sheath of brain tissue around the outside, and they can, they are 70 percent normal. Um, and people who get more than half their brain cut out wake up and they're still person, they're still the same person. So um, we're we're not divisible uh, in our being, but our bodies and brains are, and so we can't be our bodies and brains. We have to be something that's not composed of parts and that is conscious, and that's what a soul basically is. Uh, The second thing is that we all know that we have free will, and by that I mean we all know there are times when we do something and we could have refrained from doing it, and it was up to us. And and that's why we're responsible for whichever way we went because we were the ones that, that it was up to to decide which way to go. And that and so we 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 genuinely praise a person who goes into the inner city and and lives alone and spends um, her years as a third grade teacher loving on kids and just being with them at great personal risk. Well, if if I'm my brain and body, she's not worthy of praise whatsoever, because this person did what she did because of her neuro because of her genetics her brain chemistry and her external environmental influences, she was determined, or at least the probabilities were highly fixed, that what she would do would be this, if quantum physics is uh, literally metaphysically indeterminate, um, and the same thing with a murder. And so I say that we all know we're free, most at least sometimes. And we couldn't be if we were material objects or if we were material objects with emergent consciousness because if consciousness emerges from the brain, it's dependent for what it does on the brain. And you still don't have free will because the, the, the conscious states uh, do whatever the brain dictates to them. They're, they're determined. Um, the possibility of disembodied existence means there's something true of me. Uh, that's not true of my my body, and if you read one of these stories about near-death experiences, Ryan, I will challenge anybody who's listening to read one of those stories, and you tell me where there's a contradiction in that story. These people describe in detail what happened to them. Maybe they're lying through their teeth, maybe they're false, but I will tell you this, they don't say things like, I discovered a bunch of square circles, or I discovered a song that had the note C being played and not being played, um, their their stories are logically coherent. If they're logically coherent, that means they're metaphysically possible, and that means that I can't be my brain and body because that is metaphysically impossible. Um, one other thing, and I'll, I'll, I'll let it go at this, but uh, the unity of consciousness um, – my conscious state right now as I'm talking to you is, a, is a, all of the different states that are going on in me. I have pain in my feet because I have neuropathy. Um, I'm a little bit thirsty. Um, I'm, I'm also been thinking about my family because some things are going on that have been a little hard. Um, I, I have a desire uh, to have a good dinner tonight, and um, I'm really paying attention to you and and uh, and all of these states are going on, are are going on at the same time and they and they're all unified they're not little atoms of, or little drops of experience that are somehow tied together by wire or you know by tissue or whatever and what you what unifies them the answer is they all belong to me now you can't say that answer for the brain because the brain is a collection of trillions of different parts, and whenever a material object uh, performs a function, that's because each uh, various numbers of its parts perform part of the function of the whole. So you take an automobile, when it functions by driving down the road, that's because the carburetor is doing one thing, the, the, uh, the crankshaft is doing something else, and all the different functions are assigned to different parts, there is no one single part that is um, uh, responsible for the motion of the car. Uh, And what we've discovered is that when you look at an object, one part of the brain registers an electrical signal uh, that correlates with the color, Another part of the brain with its size, another part of the brain with its shape, another part of the brain with its location, and another part of the brain with whether it's at rest or in motion. So your brain breaks, all, breaks the chest of drawers down into each part of the brain having its own uh, electrical uh, stimulation that gives rise to a specific sensation – of red or shape or whatever in different places. There is no one place where all of these are reunited and the chest of drawers is experienced as a unified object. It's called the binding problem in psychology. And brains are not the right kinds of things to give you unity of consciousness because they're composed of various parts that each perform their very own uh, part of the deal. Um, if you were a brain and you went to a football game, each part of the brain would be registering, uh, a visual stimuli from different parts of the field. And so you would be like a crowd of 50,000 fans, each one with its uh, head fixed so that it can't move and a telescope there. And they're looking at a square yard of the field and they see anything that happens in that square yard of the field. And so the field is covered because if you got 50,000 fans and each is looking at their own square yard, the field, every part of the field is being viewed. Does that make sense? But there is nothing over and above that that experiences a what it is like to experience the field as a totality and a unity. and uh, It only... Something that that owns consciousness and is not composed of atomistic parts would be able to unify consciousness, and the brain is not able to do that. So those are some of the reasons… Yeah. For believing in, in a soul.
0: Those are some great reasons. Um, if possible, to tilt your screen down just a little bit. We're kind of getting more of to the top of your face. Wonderful. Now, in that then, what are, what's the atheist response? Why uh, why are they not convinced by some of these arguments? And even Fernando kind of wrote in, and he did write in, and said, you know, why do people have to be atheist? Um, so why what is the response to this? What seems like good evidence for dualism and the fact that we have
1: souls? Well, I think... I think what's happened is that in, in the culture today, people that are out there um, do not take philosophy seriously because they don't know anything about it. And instead, they, they embrace what's called scientism. Yeah. Namely, either the only way that we can know reality is through the hard sciences, or at least the vastly superior way of knowing reality is the hard sciences so if neuroscience says we're our brains and philosophers have a handful of arguments that says we're not our brains the the science is going to win uh because of the way the culture is this is not a rational factor it's a sociological one now let let me explain the counter argument to that and then you see if this has helped um Um we know that there are a group of neurons in the brain that are called mirror neurons. And if those mirror neurons are damaged, uh, a person is not able to feel empathy for someone else. Okay, that that that's a fact. Now the problem is how do we explain this fact? And uh there are three empirically equivalent theories that equally do the job. Now Theories are empirically equivalent if they're consistent with exactly the same observational data, all and only the same data. That means that you cannot settle which of the the empirically equivalent theories is true or more rational by any appeal whatsoever to empirical data, because both theories are equally consistent with empirical data. Uh, So here are the theories. The first one is... Strict physicalism, and that would be the idea that a, uh, a feeling of empathy is the same thing as a firing of mirror neurons. So the reason you can't feel empathy when your mirror neurons don't work is they're the same thing. Second explanation, a feeling of empathy is a mental state. It's not a, a brain state of any kind whatsoever because there are things that are true of it that are true of no physical state at all so they're not identical but they do stand in a cause effect relationship so that whenever the mirror neurons won't work there cannot uh, the mental state of feeling empathy can't occur because it it's occurring depends on a region of the brain functioning on this view both the mirror neurons firing and the feeling of empathy though mental and physical both exist in the brain this is called mere property dualism third view is that the feeling of empathy and consciousness exists in the soul uh the firing of mere neurons and other brain activities exist in the brain while the soul is in the body its ability to function depends on the brain functioning so the soul cannot undergo a state of feeling empathy if the relevant brain part won't work any more than the soul could have a sensation of an object if the eyes poked out. Uh, And so uh, all three of these theories are empirically equivalent and neuroscience can say absolutely nothing about which of the theories is correct. That has to be settled by epistemic criteria and by arguments that are irreducibly philosophical. And so, uh, you find,
0: go ahead. Well, I was just saying you, you often hear that neuroscience proves that we don't have souls because you can see, read the brain and see what's happening.
1: Yeah. Well, do you think you can see a thought? The,
0: the, see what? A thought. Oh yeah, that's the thing is is they can see brain lighting up but then they just have to say, what are you
1: thinking? They have to ask the patient, that's right. Yeah. And why would they have to do that if uh, what was if a thought was just a state of the brain? They can see that, can't they? Like your point now—that's yeah. a great point. And so on this, and I I'm sorry, I
0: kind of cut you off. Um, uh, but oh. people often say, you know, when you do the imagination experiment, you say, you know, picture uh, standing in a green field and you know uh, there's trees and birds and everything, and then you say, you know, where was that? That was your mind, right? That was immaterial. I've heard people kind of give the argument that. No, like your brain is like the computer uh, hard drive and your mind is like the screen on the computer. And so it's still purely physical. You have a screen projecting what is already on the brain rather than having information in the, in the soul. I don't know if I asked that well, but how would you respond to that kind of thought of it's not information in the soul. The, all the information is there in your brain and your mind is just a projection just like the screen is a projection of a computer.
1: Well, I don't know what information's got to do with it. Um, I did. It, it, it's it's perfect. It's completely irrelevant. Okay. Uh, first of all, most thinkers that have studied. I I'm trying to get back on here. Most thinkers who have studied this um, have have said that information is not physical, and so you, if you're going to punt to information, you owe me an account of what it is, uh, where it seems to be non-physical. The other thing is that. Um, uh, there is, there is no screen, or there is no region of the brain where a sensation. This doesn't have anything to do with information. It, when I look at an object, I have a have a sensation. I have a sensation of red or of sour when I taste a lemon. And the way philosophers refer to sensations is that I have a sensation of red. Or of sour. It's I'm appeared too redly. Or I'm appeared too sourly. Now these are real states. They can be. They have properties. Like a sensation of red can be fuzzy. If your eyes aren't. They can be vivid. Um, they can be painful. They can be pleasurable. But all of those are properties of the sensation. There's nothing fuzzy in my brain or anything. Uh, and so um, this involves no. Inf- the information has nothing to do with it. This involves a sensation that is not reducible to something physical, and um, in order for that sensation to be unified with other experiences I may be happening, the possessor of it and its unifier has got to be a simple substance that is not a collection of parts. So the brain would be, in this whole scenario, would be disqualified. Okay.
0: All right. So I, I told you an hour, we're at 57 minutes, and I want to try to honor that time of yours. I do have some maybe shorter questions that I want to maybe just throw out there and kind of get some short responses. as we finish. Okay. Um, but we, we kind of talked about the beginning about animals. So you do think that animals have souls?
1: I do. Uh, they have unified consciousness, but they don't have thoughts about their thoughts. Yeah. You've never seen an animal give behavior that indicates it's trying to decide which of its thoughts are true or false, or it's working on changing its beliefs. Animals don't seem to have free will, and uh, they don't, uh, there's a whole host of things that they don't, aren't able to do. How you know the kind of soul an animal has is that you attribute to it what is needed to explain its behavior, and you opt for the simplest explanation. Okay, now what about plants? Plants have a principle of life in them. There is a difference between living and non-living and plants aren't conscious or anything like that, but they are living. They have life and they have self-sustaining processes that go on. And in my view, I still hold the old view that plants grow teleologically towards a mature tomato plant. There's a got some kind of a guiding principle that that guides the uh, information.
0: Good. Now, um, I think you you mentioned this a couple of times, and I just want to make sure. I often will tell people a human without a soul is like a zombie. It's maybe chemicals firing, but there's no consciousness, no relationship, no friendship, no communication, no thoughts. It's just chemical reactions. Is that an accurate way to say that?
1: Absolutely. Okay. And the fact that zombies are at least metaphysically possible, that God could if he wanted to create them, shows that having consciousness is not physical because you could have being just like me that was not conscious.
0: Yeah. So I think that's a helpful way to picture what is the difference between a human with a soul and a human without a soul. Um, When do you think humans become ensouled?
1: When do we receive our soul? It depends on your view of dualism. Uh, If you're a Cartesian dualism following Descartes, uh, it's hard to tell, uh, but I'm a kind of a Thomistic dualist that follows in the school of Aristotle and Aquinas. I don't exactly agree with them, but I'm certainly in that school. And that means that the soul is what what gives unified life to an organism's body. So whenever you have evidence that what is in the womb is functioning on its own, and that its different parts are coordinated together for its growth and living, It is no longer a part of a bigger body because it's got its own marching orders and it is living. And there is evidence that when fertilization takes place, a brand new being comes into existence that has its own information and teleological unfolding of that information. And uh, that would be evidence for me uh, that it is a living soul.
0: Okay, and would you say that soul is, um, comes from the parents in the process of procreation, or is it special creation of God putting a soul into the body?
1: I, I, I'm more of the Traducian view that thinks the soul comes from the parents. Okay. They're, they're, the, the egg and sperm have soulish potentialities, Okay, and when they unite, those potentialities form a new substance, and that substance is a soul that is already embodied in the single cell that is the zygote
0: in so yeah wonderful we just hit an hour i have one more question i want to okay. end with if i can steal a couple minutes from you is that one right? more all right um, in your book you talk about how uh, you refer to Dallas Willard who says the immaterial nature of the human spirit is crucial to grasping the essence of spiritual growth so i wanted to wrap this all together and say why is this so valuable as christians for our spiritual growth
1: well, um, w- what we realize is that if we understand we have souls, then we begin to, to, to focus on how different faculties affect each other. So how does my thinking affect my desires or my, my emotions or my power to choose? And, and, and boy, there's all kinds of connections because these faculties, given that they're spiritual, they affect one another. And there's also the the spiritual disciplines of using the body in training uh, in contemplative prayer or gratitude, uh, which trains habits to trigger in the soul and to to form the expression of gratitude as a habit. Okay. Wonderful,
0: well, Doctor J.P. Moreland. Thank you so much for taking the time and discussing this important issue with us.
1: Always oh, good to see you, my brother. Yeah, absolutely. Just as you leave, won't hesitate to follow, your love will guide my way.